Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is a podcast all about slowing down in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery and I am very, very glad that you are listening. I'm very glad you're listening too. My name is Ben McCallery and this is episode 173 and it's a listener chat. It's been a while since we've had a listener chat on the show and I've missed it. Yeah, it's been some 50-odd episodes, I reckon, since we've had a decent listener chat. So, I mean, these came about because we had so many people sharing their stories via email or on Facebook or in the comments. And these aren't people who have written a book or who have a business around, you know, slow living or some element of slow living. They simply have an amazing story to tell. And invariably, every listener chat that I've uh, featured, people have kind of gone through some kind of transformation. Some of them have had, you know, a really big traumatic kind of catalyst. Others Mm -hmm. have just come to a a gradual realization that life lived at 150% wasn't working for them and they've made changes. But the thing that I love invariably talking to listeners in this way is just how practical and relatable everything that they share is. It's not, uh, you know, it's not been overthought. It's not presented in like bullet points. It's not yeah, it's some of the more most natural conversation you're going to have on this podcast. It is, and it's it's just I use this word every time, and I know it's the kind of the wrong word, but it's it's normal, it's real life, hmm. it's not dressed there's, up. There's no Instagram filter put on it. It's just important. And there's a lot of people that have said through our recent survey they love listener chats and they want more listener chats. We are listening, so, so we're listening to the listener chats. Listening to the listeners requesting listener chats. Yep. Uh, today I speak with Lou, Louisa Walker. So I met Lou briefly at an event that I ran in Perth with Kelly Exeter and Alex Stewart. And she was so delightfully friendly and warm and bubbly and just made me smile, which made me grin uh, from the second that I met her. And she shared a bit of her story then and then reached out via email few months ago yeah and we've been you know going back and forth a bit and when I finally got to sit down and speak to Lou her story is amazing actually she's I, mean, I don't want to give anything away because she does such a beautiful job of explaining it but she's she's been through some transformation yes. and a half and uh you know and, and coming out the other side she's got so much to share about why slow living is important particularly I think why slow living is is important to her and I think yeah yeah it's it's beautiful I don't want to give too much away because it's it's wonderful for any links uh, mentioned in this podcast go over to slowyourhome.com slash 173 for all and many most of <laughs> the information contained in this podcast you okay no now before we get into my conversation today This episode is sponsored by our friends at Etitude. Now, as you know, Etitude make ethical bed linen. They make ethical organic bamboo pajamas, cot sheets, pillowcases, mattress protectors, anything kind of bed related. Etitude probably makes it. Yeah, they do. They do. And when you realize that we spend a third of our lives in bed, mostly sleeping, a third of our lives. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it is right? a lot. That seems like a lot to it's me. It's a lot of wasted time. I don't, 
I disagree wholeheartedly with that. <laughs> but why not make it count for something good? Mm-hmm. You know, buy the good sheets, use the organic sheets, wrap yourself up in a dreamlike substance known as bamboo and enjoy the warmest slash coolest softest sheets that you were probably ever going to find. Like I've said before, I haven't slept on every sheet in the world, but of all the world's sheets that I have experienced, these are the softest. Yeah, and honestly, I was thinking about it. Uh, the quality of these sheets are so good. And um, you, you, you sort of say, well, how do they do them for so cheap? How do they make them for so cheap? And it's all about cutting out the middleman, really. Right. You know, the distribution, the wholesaler, the retailer, all the fees involved. You know, it's basically manufactured to you. That's really. right. So attitude partner directly with the manufacturer yeah. who are all... Um, certified with ethical treatment of staff, with um, organic GOTS certified dyes. Every ethical issue that you could possibly consider when it comes to the manufacture of bed linen, Etitude has covered. Yeah, they have. They've thought of everything so you don't have to. So slow your home listeners, you actually get 10% off your next purchase at Etitude, if you simply go to www.etitude.com.au, and that's a dot, not a debt, slash slow home, and enter in the offer code, sleep better. So enjoy today's episode and have a, uh, have a great day. Louisa, hello. Hi, Brooke. How are you? I'm well today. I'm re- I'm well. Yeah, and really pleased to be talking to you. Likewise, I have to say, I think about you often when I met you at um, in Perth at a simpler way. You were so kind and warm and lovely. You just made me feel you know, feel nice and warm and fuzzy. So yeah, I think about you a lot. It's nice to talk to you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the warm fuzzies back at me. That was a really wonderful day and there was such a great vibe in the room at that Simpler Way event in Perth. It really was. Kel and I talk about it a lot. It was just such a, an amazing group of people. And you know when people come together and they're warm and they're open and they're willing to share and listen and accept, you know, everyone, was, everyone turned up, I guess, is the best way to describe that, that day. I, I loved it a lot. Yeah, with an openness to hear something different and a willingness to learn, which I think is just so important in our society today, to to be open and willing to learn from others. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because I think so often we approach a new idea or a different way of thinking or doing life with the defensiveness, you know, because maybe we feel judged or we feel like the way we're doing it has been wrong. And I think when we learn to to open up and be uh, more accepting. I think it's, yeah, I think magic kind of happens. So I want to talk about your story because it's a tremendous one. Uh, tell me, like go. let's go back a few years and tell me when did you first start to realise that you wanted to slow down? Like was there a catalyst, was there a moment in your life where you realised things need to change? Yeah, I've been thinking about this lately and going, well, when was it I really got this idea of slow or simple or less? 
And I can't pin it down, but I can pin down a moment where I think I started to realize things weren't right. Mm -hmm. And it was when my youngest son um, was about six months old or so, and I had him strapped in the pram and I'm up at the shopping center. He's, you know, just delving into solid foods and I'm in big W and I put, I'm trying to choose new bibs and I've put a green bib, a blue bib and an orange bib on his chest and taken a photo because I'm trying to choose which one's the right bib because there's a right one and a wrong one. You know, the blue matches the high chair, but blue was the colour for my older child. Green was the theme colour for my younger child. But orange is great with pumpkin. Um, Which one? Well, I've got to get this right. So I literally took a photo, texted it to my husband at work in the middle of a work day, and when he didn't instantaneously reply with, oh, clearly it's the green one and the orange one, I rang him and said, which bib? Which bib is it? He's like, Louisa, I'm at work. I, do you understand what I've got going on right now? I really could care less about the bibs. And I was like, but it's important. And I literally could not fathom that this bib choice didn't matter. Yeah. What do you think was driving it? Like was that was that um, desire to look like you had everything together and like you needed to be that person who was on top of it all or was there something else that was driving that? It, it, it is very much about that looking like you've got it all together. Yeah, you just spoke to me like seven years ago, eight years ago. That was me. <laughs> yeah, like I had um, my first son, my eldest, Finlay, um, when I was 29 and unbelievably I was surrounded in Perth by five or six girlfriends and we all had babies in the space of six months. Mm-hmm. Now, for two of those friends, it was their second child, so they had a clue <laughs> as to what was going on. Um, and the other ones, it was all our first child. And so we all had it going on and I was uber prepared. I would bought the pram, the capsule, the car seat, the cot, the everything. And one of my friends had her baby four weeks early and she'd only rung me about two weeks before that to say, hey, um, I know you've got everything, so what did you get? Mm. And I'll just get the same. I'll get the same pram, the same car seat. Where'd you go buy your cot? Right, okay, cool. So I was, people were like, oh, you've got it going on. Yep, you're doing good and it's going great. And for the first six months, it was fab. It was going great. And then it started to unravel a little bit and be about have am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the dark clouds sort of came in and not connecting with everyone at mother's group, um, but having to look like you had it together. So you had to show up every week to mother's group, dressed with your baby, looking like it was all going on, um, but really not feeling like I fit in. Yeah. This is such a common experience, you know, and I think that mm-hmm. part of it is because we're all so at sea, you know, when you, you, you start a family, it is a huge transition in every possible way. But I think the other part is we're not necessarily encouraged to share how we're really feeling, you know. And I think I speak to so many people, so many women and their partners who, who say the same thing. And it's not until you find either, uh, you know, the ability to articulate how you're feeling or the people to feel comfortable enough to say it to, that then someone else will say, oh, me too, I found that really hard as well or I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. And I think it's such a, 
a sad uh, situation for so many of us that we feel so alone and we feel like we absolutely must keep up with, you know, the Joneses in this particular instance. Yeah. And I think it, for me, it was, I've, I'd had success in my career and now this was my thing. Now I had to do this and do it properly. Yes. And I went from being someone who had, we had a hand-me-down one metre by one metre dining table and some folding chairs in our dining room and I was fine with that but suddenly I had to have the latest greatest gadget to be a mum I had to have the right things and then and what what, I mean um, and you'd already kind of at least looking back you can see that that's when you started to realize that stuff and and getting things right in that capacity was tied to it how did I mean? How was the, the the following months after you started on your antidepressants and things like that? Because I know for me it was a revelation, to be honest, when I was diagnosed with PND and then uh, started taking medication and seeing a psychiatrist. That was that was a revelation. That's when things really shifted for me, not in a grand kind of explosive kind of way, but in a very gradual, organic, important sort of way. And I think that's it for me, Terry, that it was gradual Mm. because it was the following, so that was around October 2011 and that was the following year that I had a real meltdown moment where my eldest disappeared from the building in the middle of a family music lesson, you know, where you take both your kids and you juggle both of them to do music. And when we found him, he'd been out into a big public car park to go to the car because that's what you do when you're three and a half. You go get that thing you left in the car. When he got back, instead of being, like, relieved, I was incredibly angry. Mm. And I had one of those moments where I went, oh, my God, how could you do this to me? And I buckled the kids in the car with fury and anger and yelling and, oh, and I rang my husband and I said, I've just lost my mind at the kids because this is what happened and I'm shaking what's going on. And that's when I got in to see a psychiatrist and that's when my mental health journey started to open up a little bit and we discovered that it wasn't just anxiety and depression, that it was bipolar type 2 and that was a gradual journey itself. He didn't go, oh, hello, yep, okay, so that's what happened. Yeah, I've got a label for you and here's how we fix it. It probably took six months of trying different medications Um, for him to go, yeah, I think you need this other thing called a mood stabiliser and this other thing called an antipsychotic and because what I generally see in my patients who have bipolar, you go, pardon, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Oh, hmm, Mm -hmm. okay. And that, I mean, I'm not big on labels because of what other people think that label means But I think it's important when you see a professional and they give you a label that you understand that's a tool for them to find and access the different treatment options that are there for you and can help you to understand a little bit, especially if you go on websites like Black Dog Institute and read other people's story of their mental health. I started to relate and identify Mm. that what they talk about as mood swings was for me, these swings in energy. One day I had loads of energy and I could, I was nailing this parenting gig, two kids, one toddler, let's take him to toddler gym and nurse the baby and breastfeed him at the same time while running around on, you know, with one kid on the balance beam. Other days, the idea of leaving the house with both of them just to get milk that I needed to make a cup of tea was 
insurmountable. Mm. It was just too hard. Um, and finally, I had a reason why I went from being uber capable to unable to leave the house. So, yeah, you're right. In that regard, having, I mean, a label or diagnosis or, or a word to use to describe it is so helpful because you can then find a framework to, and a point of reference for how you're feeling and what your experience is and what it can be going forward and how to relate it to other people's experiences as well. So, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. Labels in that regard are incredibly important uh, just for grounding, you know, rather than kind of floating out and going, what's happening? Why is this happening? What's wrong with me? Am I different to anyone else? Am I different to everyone else? You know, yeah. Yeah, and I, I became quite open with people about it over the following couple of years. And even now, if I say to somebody, oh, I have, I try not to say I am, um, but I have bipolar type too, they go, oh, wow, I would never have guessed. Hmm. And it just started to dawn on me recently that that's, that's kind of the heart of the problem mm. for public perception about mental health. Yep. Um, no, you would never have guessed because I don't generally show you my worst. <laughs> like any human being, you don't normally see the worst of my behaviour or um, when I'm down in a hole. So, no, I wouldn't expect you to have guessed. Um, just like looking at somebody with diabetes, you wouldn't guess. Mm. Um so I hope by continuing to tell people that that's a label I've got, you know, kind of like sewn in the back of your T-shirt, <laughs> um, that by telling people that they start to get, oh, okay, so this is actually kind of a different version of normal. It's not somebody who's out on the fringe of society yeah. um, that having bipolar does allow me to live, quote, unquote, a normal life. Um, I just wanted but to yeah. tell you that I think it's really admirable and important that what you're doing because I think it's you're absolutely right. You know, we have all these, these we have these perceptions of what bipolar might look like or what anxiety might look like, but when people aren't talking about them openly, we don't really have a um, a point of reference in our own day to day life of someone who we know, you know, who who also has you know has this label but isn't that label uh i think yeah i think it's incredibly important and wonderful and i i i don't know i don't want to sound condescending but i commend you like i'm proud of you for for doing it i think it's it's wonderful so i mean that that kind of brings us back to this idea of slow and simple uh so you mentioned that you first once you were diagnosed with your anxiety after your second baby was born then did you start making changes aside from your mental health um, changes yeah. and seeing your psychiatrist. What, I mean, what were those sort of changes? Um, well, I started to realise that I had these, I really thought I was going to be a fantastic mum and have three kids and I was going to nail it and work part-time and keep it all together and have the clean house, you know, the big house in the suburbs and it was all going to be rosy and then it was like, well, this is unraveling. This is not, I'm not keeping up with it all. Mm-hmm. And here I am with these two beautiful boys and a really dedicated, loving husband who's been there throughout it all. Maybe I need to change the plan. Um, and maybe that dream of a third child isn't reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's be- Maybe it's beyond what I can handle. And <laughs> my GP uh, at the time, he was awesome. He was also my husband's GP, which helped. 
um, he said, you can't, you can't have a third child. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, it will kill your husband. It's too much on him. Can you see how much he's doing? He's holding it all together. And that's when I realised I really wasn't holding it together. Mm. I was trying to do, be too many things and trying to fit this grand vision and expectation. So I, I, I gradually sort of let go of the idea of a third child. And, it, it, I mean, I think a lot of mothers can relate to it really is a letting go of, okay, I'm, I'm done. So that was a little bit gradual um, and also – my youngest had turned two and so you kind of shift from that baby phase to the toddler phase. Um, and then we went on a fantastic family holiday. We bought ourselves a secondhand four-wheel drive, borrowed a friend's trailer, packed up our camping gear and drove, my husband drove all the way up to from Perth to Broome in the heart of the Kimberley and I flew up with the boys and we had a month camping and traveling through the Kimberley Mm -hmm. and they were four and a quarter and two and a quarter and we had friends who thought we were completely mad to take them to such a remote place at such a young age but on that journey after not being able to cope with family life at home I I have admiration for my husband for saying let's do this because I coped fantastically Mm. and I had a fantastic time in what, you know, camping is such a microcosm of simple living. Exactly. It really is a getting back to basics. And you realise really quickly how little you need to be happy, like blissfully happy. Blissfully happy in a four-person tent with no running water, um, (laughs) UHT milk and (laughs) a thousand episodes of Peppa Pig in the eight-hour drives in the car and it's all good. And the sun's shining and, you know, you get a flat tyre and it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so that was the first time that we went really out bush as a family and had such a fantastic time. And I really looked at my two boys and they became so close in that month having to play with each other. I went and it was really a moment of being present and seeing what I had. I've got this loving husband who loves adventure that brings out that adventurous spirit in me. I love being outdoors. And I had these two beautiful boys who just wanted to play in the dirt with a couple of pieces of Lego to make diggers. Mm. I'm like, wow, here we are. And um, just thinking about that trip um, makes my my heart shine. I can um, tell. I can tell by the tone of your voice. You just got a big grin on your face. So when you got home after that month, and did you have a lot of stuff at that time? Because I know you've you've spoken to me about it before. That you know, and particularly with the boys being born, you you did accumulate a lot of things. Did that kind of weigh heavily on you when you got home? Yeah, I got home, and I think that was you know coming. That was sort of midwinter, and went. Right, well, I'm okay. I'm cool with this not having another baby. And so all that baby stuff, it can go. Mm -hmm. It's time for it to go. And um, I got rid of all the baby stuff, um, sort of narrowed it down to those sentimental things and looked at different things around the house and went, okay, so he's, he's in that toddlery phase. We'll hold on to this, that and the other thing, but they'll then go. 
And so that really started to clear out. I'm sure everyone's been through that peak plastic moment when you've got a baby and a toddler or a toddler and a preschooler and you're like, if there is another toy that beeps, flashes and sings a song at me, I'm done. Uh, And so when I see friends who are in that phase, I go, it's okay, it's okay, it gets better. I, I really think that we have to tell parents who are in with the baby and the toddler or the toddler and the preschooler or even one's at school and one's still a preschooler, it gets easier because yeah. it does. You, you shift from having these little beings that need your presence to do everything <laughs> from eating, drinking, playing, toileting. They just need you all the time and we have all these toys to kind of keep them busy and keep them entertained. And so, you know, if I had my time again, I can see how I would shift that Mm. and have less of those things and remember that just going out in the backyard, they're just so much happier. Um, But I definitely started clearing out stuff. And how did that make you feel as you were letting go of it, you know, piece by piece? The first couple of pieces, it was like, ooh, heartstrings. Mm. And then it was like, okay, I'm good. And it built a momentum of, oh, that feels lighter, less stuff. Oh, now I can actually get in this room and enjoy what's here now and enjoy the phase of life I'm in now. Not the one I was in, not the one I thought I was going to be in, but where I'm at now. And it's, it's really that being in the moment thing and appreciating what you have at that particular time that started to shine through. I could live in that period of time, mm. um, you know, that ultimate goal of being present to the present. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's the key lesson that's carried through. Um, even, even just yesterday I was trying to remind myself, be present in the present. Don't think about what these other plans are that you've got going on. Just think about what you actually have around you today. You've got a house to live in. You've got your two boys who are happily riding their bikes to school. Your husband's got a four-minute commute down the street on his bicycle. You sit in your lounge room and you look out at the beautiful gum trees around you. The sun's been shining. Enjoy that. Don't get distracted by trying to live in the future. Yeah, Justin Coulson said to me uh, on an episode a few months ago now, he said, be where your feet are. I thought that's mm. such a beautiful. Oh, simple, I'm going to take that one. Yeah, it just where your feet are exactly. Yeah. You know, and if they're yeah. pointing at your family, be there. And you know, if you're in your garden, be there. And if you're walking along the beach, be there. And if you're at your desk, be there. And I just think it's, uh, you know, it's it's basically the antithesis of trying to balance and be everything to everyone all the time, oh. which, which takes us out of the present. You know. Whether that's the intention or not, that's what it does, you know, trying to balance and, and be everything to everyone. You can't possibly be where you are, you know, not 100%. No. So, yeah, I really love that. So, Lou, you've had this incredible trip and learnt so much and grown so much and then you get the opportunity to move to Dunsborough and oh, yeah. Dunsborough is beautiful. I was looking at it online this morning. Like, what a place to live. I know, I know. It's like hashtag blessed, which is so cliche, but yes, yes. And how different is life now uh, from even, let's say, 12 months, a couple of years ago because of where you're living? 
Oh, um, I do feel really fortunate that we've been able to make this move to this lovely little country town slash beach town slash tourism town that is like a holiday destination for everyone who's in Perth in the rat race, as it were. Um, and so we just thought it was so serendipitous that we got this opportunity um, because it does tie in with the lessons we've learnt. Yeah. Um, that you can live slower and simpler. And uh, I guess the first lesson was in choosing a house to live in. Mm. <laughs> when you're choosing to rent a house, you're like, okay, so I don't have many choices. And that sort of comes back to that less choice is actually easier. It makes deciding on things easier, whether that less choice is on which houses you can rent because which ones will have a dog. Um, yep. And yep. <laughs> which when you've been a homeowner for over 12 years, you suddenly realise that not everyone's dog friendly um, or whether it's the fact that I needed a, uh, an organiser for the kitchen cutlery drawer and old me in Perth would have gone to Woolworths and Big W and gone to the kitchen shop and then checked in the department store and then weighed up whether I should buy the fancy <laughs> or the $2 one. We're back the to the bibs, aren't we? <laughs> But the great thing was here, I just went down to the main shopping centre in town, which is quite small, and there's a kitchenware store. And I walked in, I said, do you have a cutlery organiser? Will it fit my drawer? Yep, done. And went home. And that, that, that just something as simple as having less choices um, really has impacted every day. Mm. It's not like, well, which shop will I go to for this and that? Or where will I go for this and that? It's that's the place you go. That's it. Yeah, I think there is so much to be said for less, fewer choices. I really do. And I think that there's so much, providing you're able to accept and embrace that, there is quite a bit of joy and freedom in that because you simply don't spend time overthinking your decisions, you know, and when you, when it came to finding a house, it would have been the same really as, as, you know, buying a cutlery organizer. It's just, well, these are our options. Let's just make the best decision and move on. And I find when there's less choice, um, you're far less inclined, well, I'm, I'm far less inclined to overthink it, first of all, and then spend time after making the decision thinking through the what ifs. And that in itself is such a relief as well. Uh, it's a big relief. It's a big relief. And I, sometimes I, I take that and apply it to things like, what are we going to have for dinner? Instead of going, oh, well, I'm missing this ingredient and that ingredient and I really should be doing protein and how many vegetables should I get into the kids and balance out the carbohydrates. Sometimes I just open my tiny pantry and go, baked beans it is. You know, I don't feel like going down to the shops again. And you know what? That choice is okay and my kids will be fine yep. and it's taking away that pressure again yep. to make it perfect all the time. Absolutely. So another one of the things that is different for you, very different for both you and your husband, I guess, is the commute situation. What does that look like now? That is, pardon my whining dog. Oh, that's right. um, the, my husband was even saying, because I asked him the other evening, what do you think has been fantastic? What do you think? And he goes, the commute. Mm. He literally said it was killer. Mm. And yeah, I get that we're really fortunate to, to have this opportunity, but his commute was varied because of traffic between 45 minutes and an hour and a half each way yeah. in the day. And that meant that he wasn't getting that time to unwind and decompress and he certainly 
was dropping off the time for exercise. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And that was certainly something that Ben and I, when we moved to the mountains like nine years ago, he did the commute for seven years. But it was always something that we were working towards. I mean, the reason that we moved to the mountains, there was many of them, uh, but also housing affordability was a big one. It's a matter of really weighing things up, isn't it? And figuring out what works in the in the meantime and what you're happy to deal with sort of in, as an interim measure. But we were always working towards this idea of him, you know, having either more flexible work hours or being able to work part-time from home. Uh, and then it turns out that he was actually able to, to swing it, that we're both full-time from home. Yeah, but it's it's certainly something worth deeply considering, I think, because he was his commute was similar to your husband's. It was an hour and a half each way every day. So three hours a day mm-hmm. spent, you know, in, in commute. And it's, oh, anyway... <laughs> We get stuck in thinking about it in a certain way and I was even looking at should my husband have been catching the train to get to work and I think uh, Perth and some of the, the Australian cities really don't have the public transport infrastructure or the mentality to use the public transport infrastructure. People assume it's going to take them longer, assume it's a waste of time or money, or even cycling. People go, oh, that's so hard. What if it rains? And then I remind myself of my time in London where everyone catches the tube. It's not, oh, you poor thing, you have to catch the train to work. Everyone catches Mm -hmm. the tube and the buses and walks and gets their exercise in just in that incidental way. And I think it's a shift in thinking. And look, we're now a one-car family. Right. So I was going to ask you if there was another change, you know, that, that came with that. Well, we sold my car before we left because I went, well, I could end up completely on the other side of Australia and my car is... Well, I was perfectly happy with it. I'd gone through the whole process of, oh, maybe it's time I got a nice shiny new car and then worked out that for the features I had in my current car, I was up for a change-out fee of like $25,000, yes. And you go, mm, maybe this one's doing fine. And then to go, oh, now, I, now I've got to let it go. I let it go and it went to a young couple about to have their first child and I felt good about that. And then I, I hoped I wasn't going to regret selling it. And then when we got here, I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I need my car. I don't need my car mm. at all. And um, sometimes people look at me funny when I say, oh, we're a one-car family. And I, But we really don't need it. My husband rides his bike to work. The car sits in the garage most days because the children ride to school. Yes, I take it to do the grocery shopping. The nearest big town is like 25 minutes away. So occasionally I pop over there and it's mostly us using it on the weekend as a family to go to footy or surf club or to go and visit one of the caves and things. Yeah, and I think it's a mindset shift as well. You know, that like immediate convenience factor isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily need to be the first uh, consideration, you know, but I think we're just so used to it being the case that we're constantly thinking, okay, what's the easiest and the easiest would yeah. have been to have two cars in that moment. But what's like the second easiest? That's really not that much of a stretch to go <laughs> and ask a neighbor, yeah. you know, for help for a second. The other thing my husband said last night was, um, he goes, you can live somewhere that's too quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I laughed at him. <laughs> he said he slept in yesterday morning because there was no noise to wake him up. <laughs> 
there was no traffic build up and we lived on a slightly busy suburban street that a lot of people used to cut through to the shopping centre or to the two different private schools and dropping their kids off. So it used to get gradually noisier in the morning and here the only day you get that is is bin day when the bins are collected. And I realise it is really quiet like that but I really enjoy that quiet yeah. and that was something that I got from each time we go away camping, you go, oh, my gosh, it's so quiet and I'm just not, oh, the noise is just gone. And then I realised it's not just the noise quiet but it's also visually quieter. Yes. You, you're not being bombarded with things and I vividly remember coming back from Exmouth one July and driving into Perth and hitting the first set of traffic lights and going, oh, lots of cars, lots of cars hmm. lights sitting here. And then we turned and then we were on the freeway and there's all these signs and things. And I suddenly felt my anxiety rising as there was all this visual stimulus, this now, 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 and look over here and check that out. And here's our storage place and come to our shop. And here's the golden arches of takeaway and all those things just in your face. Mm. And I and I'd realised maybe it's special to WA because our landscape is quite broad and flat and you can drive hundreds of kilometres with the same view. So coming back into Perth really, really showed that. And down here I get to be removed from that visual clutter. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I like cities for a change of scene, but... I, th- I used to think that I was going to be a city person. I'd grow up, I'd live in the city and I would really enjoy that kind of hustle and bustle. Uh, what I've discovered as I've gotten older is that I, I, I enjoy it and immerse myself in it on occasion, but I do find it quite uh, tiring, you know, the stimulation. And I'm sure it would be different if you lived there. Yeah. And, you know, you had your community, you had your village within a city and all of those sorts of things. But for someone who doesn't live in a city environment, yeah, I, I do find it quite overstimulating. Oh. Yeah. It's hilarious when you talk, I'm talking to the footy mums and they're saying, oh, I went up to Perth last weekend, couldn't wait to get home. Mm. (laughs) Because there's a lot of people living here who've made the move from Perth. And so I kind of feel like I'm in a bit of a community of people who've made the change. Um, And so we laugh at each other when we go, oh, couldn't wait to get home. Like I had to go up and get a few things and we had to go because this appointment or there was some pressing reason to go and and then you just can't wait to get home again to just get out of that uh you feel that frenetic pace Mm. that that gotta rush gotta go gotta do this gotta get there and coming down here just slowing it down so on that though was there I mean I think we often make these moves or we hear about people making these moves like a a sea change for example expecting them to deliver us to some kind of utopia of mindful slow intentional living have you discovered I mean is it true that that is what you've discovered or are there challenges or drawbacks to to living a sea change kind of life there there are challenges and um especially in the first couple of months we were here my anxiety went up Mm. and I was like why am I struggling this is where this is the utopia this is what you know this is the amazing dream why is this hard and I realized first if you make a change like that you've got to establish new rhythms and routines in this new place and of course kids need some of those little touchstones in their day like oh first we have our breakfast then we get sent in the new house we have to go downstairs to get dressed and then we can come back upstairs just those routines establishing those 
but then now that I'm established here and I've got my friends, I see that you can still fall into the same pitfalls of rushing and busyness Mm -hmm. in a country town. You can still be driving the kids here, there and everywhere. You know, oh, this one's got soccer, that one's got football and, you know, and this one's doing dance lessons and piano. And I do sound like I'm picking on extracurricular activities, but I, I make a conscious choice with extracurricular activities that my kids do it in seasons. Yep. It's not like you have to be doing swimming lessons all through the middle of winter. That doesn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me because then I feel like you're pushing yourself in too many directions. So my mm-hmm. kids have two activities. or at the, um, well, Yeah, so like in summer it was for my boys it was cricket and surf club and now it's um, footy and my youngest not only does he do Auskick but he's doing hip hop. He's loving right. that. My eldest is doing mountain biking club and I just set a cap at that. I still feel the, oh, they should be learning an instrument. (laughs) They should, you know, they're nine and seven now. They're not going to be virtuosos if you haven't started them by, you know, five on their (laughs) instrument. Um, But, I, I, you know, I still really have to make sure they have their downtime and they're bored and kicked off their iPads. Oh, bored. Just go outside. Um, But also for myself. Um, every now and again I go, oh, I need a such and such. And you go, oh, I have to go to Bustleton. It's funny how that just 25-minute drive just holds me back. I go, <laughs> right, better wait till I've got three or four things before I drive all the way there. And I do rethink whether I need to go and do something, but I have noticed that there are other par- other people who will just pop back and forth every day. Mm. Um, so it is about making those conscious choices to not keep going back and forth. Um, you don't have to have that thing straight away. You don't have to commit yourself to, I don't know, too many things. Yeah. But at the same time, I I find here it's there is a real sense of community and it's easy to get involved in things. Even my husband is getting involved in more community things here. Perhaps that's a time factor. Mm, yeah, that's true. Well, you would have, he would have three extra hours a day as well. He to, does. Yeah. And he did say first the change of workplace, he didn't have, he suddenly realised how much he had friends in his old workplace mm. that he'd, you know, he'd mm. worked with some people for nine years and then you move to a new town and it's a new team and there's not necessarily people of exactly his age or interests and the balancing act of being their manager. So he was trying to find ways to connect with people. Yeah. And I think finding people who have common interests. So he's been joining the mountain biking club and joined the commerce and um, Chamber of Commerce and Industry um, down here. And I've sort of realised I need to make a few more connections outside of footy mums, school mums, dance mums, and they're not really a dance mum. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not really. <laughs> um, and I realised, oh, maybe I need to connect with other people who like doing knitting or crochet. So one of my little things for the next couple of weeks over winter is to um, put an invitation out to a few people to meet at the library and do some knitting So that's and lovely. Crochet. And that's something that we just, when we hear these stories of people making these massive shifts and genuinely and generally very positive shifts towards a slower lifestyle, that's one of the things I think that's lacking from the conversation is how do you go about developing community roots when you're new in a place or you've completely Mm. shifted? And I think that 
I'm really glad that you brought that up, actually, because I think it's one of the things that we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily aware of straight away. And that's fantastic. Good on you, because I think often our tendency is to wait for someone else to do something like that. And then we might kind of slide in and and join in that way. But to be the person instigating it, I think that's brilliant. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I saw that there was a book club thing happening through the library and I thought, oh, that's great. I, I've seen one of the mums I know with that big bag of books to hand out to her book club. Then I realised I really am not a book club person. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky if I can finish a book <laughs> in a few months. And I don't need the stress of, oh, my God, I really haven't read the book. But what's something that can help me to connect to others? And I think it came about naturally because while my son was doing his hip-hop lessons, it's right next to the library. So I go and sit in the library because it's got funky coloured chairs and it's got a great vibe and great magazines to borrow and not buy. All those, you know, all those little synergies of mm. not buying stuff. Oh, look at the great opportunities things I've got here and books on how to knit this and crochet that so I was sitting there doing my knitting and I have had a couple of the other dance mums come in and go oh oh I'd love to learn how to knit and you go and and I guess I've realized how much more I sit in the possibility of yes you can do that Mm. rather than I wish I would or wish I could or someday I'll find the time to or I think those little pockets of of slower they're the building blocks you know of of greater change. I know that's certainly where I began way back in the day when I was really struggling and completely overwhelmed. Uh, I would think that standing in the sun for 30 seconds uh, or taking my shoes off and hanging the washing out, I, I would never imagine that that would have the impact that it did. But the reality is that's where it started for me. And I know so many people whose experience is very similar in that way. And those, I think we're, we're really quick to sort of poo-poo those little pockets of slow is insignificant, but my experience has been the opposite. You know, they may feel insignificant in the moment, but they're really, really quite significant in the the grand scheme of things. And I love that that's, you know, that that's one of the things that you've taken away from all of these changes and this, like for, you know, one of a less cliched word, this journey that you've been on. Uh, I think that that's brilliant and such a, like a lovely place to, to wrap up. Lou, thank you so much for sharing so generously i've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you brooke thanks mate no it's been it's been awesome jackrabbit fm for your ears who is that hi puck pass